The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, Episode 105. A sequel to the 80s classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Hey, this is George Peterson. Well, there's a new episode of the Sequel Quest podcast, as you might have heard. I'd like you to listen to Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy pitching their ideas for a new Ferris Bueller film with their special guest. I'm sorry? Did you say you don't have time for another podcast? They take the time to come up with these fake movies, and you ignore them? What the hell is the matter with you anyway? Pardon my French, but this show is genius! Genius! Rooney! You just mind your P's and Q's, Buster. And remember what podcast you're listening to. Quest. Sequel Quest. And that is enough of that. <laughs> Amen, brother. Sounds like Bernie Stanza's father. Oh, I was going to go for Bernie Sanders, but either <laughs> one. Well, welcome to the show, everyone out there on the Retro Network and beyond. Thanks for giving us a listen. Now, before we get into the show proper, I wanted to make all the listeners aware that we have a new release schedule that we are using now that we're here on the Retro Network to bring you weekly entertainment of the fake movie variety. We were traditionally a a bi-weekly podcast, but starting in June, each month you'll get two classic episodes of Sequel Quest from our archive that we're calling our Sequel Quest Rewind shows. So there's lots of exciting stuff there for newer listeners that you may not have heard you will get one sequel chat movie review and one new sequel quest experience like this and that's coming to you each month so we hope you enjoy this steady stream of audio fun let me introduce you to your regular sequel quest hosts here currently walking down the aisles of Shermer high with a tin can collecting money to save ferris it's jeff that is true and certainly not looking to leave his cheese in the wind it's jeremy (laughs) wow (laughs) just the ginger connection you make me the creepy old principal (laughs) who stalks his students breaks into their homes wow adam are we surprised jeremy we know you're committed to your jobs and i'm sure you'd be as committed as rooney definitely i'm the guy who's gonna keep calling i'll keep calling i'll keep calling i'm adam and we're excited to be sharing all our ideas with you tonight for sequels prequels and or reboots we'll see where this takes us we have a special guest with us tonight who is actually the reason we are all here talking about this film he is the co host of our sister podcast sequel chat where we review movies during their weekend of release fresh from a joyride in a rare vintage ferrari oh yeah it's colton thank you i've been sitting on this pitch for several years i'm excited this is gonna but jeremy why don't you tell us about the film well if you've not figured it out yet this is starring matthew broderick alan ruck mia Sara, jennifer gray jeffrey jones Edie McClurg, written and directed by John Hughes, this is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
clever high schooler Ferris Bueller decides to sneak away with his girlfriend and depressed buddy into a wild adventure while skipping school in downtown Chicago, outsmarting authority figures along the way and avoiding having his schemes revealed by his jealous sister. We need to work on your run-on sentences there, Adam. <laughs> oh, I do love a comma. <laughs> now, this is obviously a classic film of the 80s. Many people know it. It's been parodied, most recently in Deadpool, I would say. But, Colton, you said up top that you've had this idea simmering for a sequel for quite a while. Can you tell us what it is about this movie for you that inspired that? And maybe what was even your first exposure to Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I always enjoyed it exactly for what it was as a child watching it then i became a teenager and obviously because of its teenage themes i learned to enjoy it even more what really got me interested though was and uh and for those of you who don't know this we are just weeks away from the 10th anniversary of john hughes's untimely death and i remember around the time he passed away it really hit me deeply because he had been out of hollywood for the most part, nearly 20 years. Nobody really knows the whole story. We just know that his spirit was a little hurt by how the system works. He made five great films about what it means to be a teenager and then just kind of disappeared. And I always felt like there was room to follow up what happened next between Ferris and Cameron in the following years. And when he passed away, I was like, well, we're definitely never going to get that sequel. But then I thought, well, maybe somebody could still make it and just kind of dedicate the film to John's memory at some point in the credits. I believe I do have a pitch that could absolutely follow the spirit of the first film without seeming cheap or derivative. Okay, well, we were going to look forward to that. Now, Jeremy, how about you? Is this part of your regular rotation? Well, considering I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that was born after this movie came out. Yeah, it's definitely a classic. If it's on the TV, whether it's on TBS or whatever, TNT, it's a classic to go back to. To be fair, this film came out about 19 days before I was born. <laughs> Same year, <laughs> but just a few weeks early. Okay. Yeah. Now, coming as a big surprise, likely, to my co-host, this is not an 80s film that I am terribly familiar with. No. I'm the least surprised <laughs> of anything you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's actually the case with most John Hughes directed films. Like, I, I've seen a lot of the films that he wrote, which, you know, he was, you know, he kind of had his, his run, like Colton was mentioning, of giving us stuff like The Breakfast Club, which we have covered recently on the show, so that'll come up in a rewind one of these days and so really my main connection to this film was at disneyland when i hired in now jeff and i we have a, another podcast called the two goose podcast where we talk about our experiences in the disneyland character department so when i first started there there was a girl named bethy and during our audition she told me that i looked like cameron from this film which isn't really true but i do have a very <laughs> long face so that might be where her brain made that connection you know but every time that she saw me at work after that it was always hi cameron you know and i hadn't <laughs> seen the movie i didn't really have oh, wow. any concept except that prior to that experience the only portion of the film that i knew about was the infamous phone call sequence that i parodied at the top of the show because jeff and some of our friends performed that at a high school talent show his senior year 
Jeff, what can you tell us about that experience and your whole exposure to Ferris Bueller? Well, first off, as far as like my own personal connection to this film, where it's kind of similar to, to what Colton was saying, to be honest, I didn't have much affinity for this as a kid, that it, it was just it was one of those movies that was always on. And I remember like when DVDs first came out, this is one of the five or so movies that would always be $10 at Target. But it was like, it's on TV all the time. Why would I bother buying it? Uh, and it was kind of one of those things that y you had seen parts of it on TV so many times. And it was always fun, but it kind of became a little rote, at least for me. And then as I got older, like like Colton was saying, I kind of appreciated more of the teenage aspect. Although for me, I was always a bigger fan of John Hughes's other films. This is maybe my least favorite of his. But then as I got older and more kind of a movie fan, I kind of appreciated some of the, the intricacies of the fourth wall breaking and, and really... I don't think Ferris grows a whole lot in this movie, but Cameron grows a lot. And that's that's something that was really unique from that perspective. As far as what you were talking about, Adam, with high school, is we had one friend of ours, David, who believed he was Ferris Bueller. <laughs> and the, the sad thing is, and that was kind of the, not joke, because he wasn't in on the joke, was the fact that he didn't have the gumption to be Ferris Bueller. He would just skip school. He's not going to try and pretend like, oh, no, I'm secretly sick. No, he's just leaving. Like, it's so... He wasn't as sly as Ferris Bueller. He just always saw himself as Ferris Bueller. So when we got to the school talent show our senior year, it was his dream to do the big scene from Ferris Bueller. So we did do the him calling in sick scene, which ironically, Ferris Bueller is barely in. That's a Cameron scene. Yeah. He just has his one line where he says, Bueller, Ferris Bueller, which was his crowning achievement, I think, of his high school experience. <laughs> I, I got love to you, play, Dave. <laughs> it's true. I got to play uh, Principal Rooney. Our friend Shea got to play the secretary and doing her best South Dakota accent. Yeah, she, she was like um, spot on Edie McClurg. She did great. Our friend Majid, who played Cameron, so it was really his moment to shine. Right. If Jeff does not want to raise any issue with it, I have the video footage that I will post to our Sequel uh -huh. Quest oh, YouTube no. page, just as we did with our uh, Three Amigos sketch. So if you want to go back, you can check that out. So this is my question though for you guys this is a defining role for matthew broderick who has had a career that has spanned decades and continues to appear certainly not as high profile as he once was but where do you guys fall in matthew broderick fandom or appreciation for his films because as i was looking through his filmography i was kind of surprised by the movies that stuck out to me when i thought of him so let me just ask you colton matthew broderick fan is there a particular film of his that is a number one in your mind? I guess I think only of Ferris Bueller and Simba. Like, seriously. Mm. Because other than that, I think of, you know, Godzilla and Inspector Gadget. And again, <laughs> repressed, <laughs> memories, oh repressed memories I tried to force out of my mind. Um, but a small film he did with a very young Reese Witherspoon, Election, I did enjoy that. I've always heard great things and I've never seen that one. Yeah, It, it is good. It's a very good film. But it's not you know what I mean? It's not for wide mainstream audiences. It's a niche little independent film, but I always enjoyed it. And, you know, and uh, I should mention, you know, Simba, he's big Simba, as my niece used to say, because she was like three years <laughs> old when that movie came out. She's like, I'm big Simba. She never wanted to be, you know, the uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas yeah. Simba. <laughs> so she's a fan, apparently. How about you, Jeremy? You, you a big fan of uh, Biloxi Blues? Project what? X? 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was basically through this and, yes, the haunting Inspector Gadget. But, yeah, that's basically where I knew him from. See, for me, like, when I was looking through, there's the producers. That was, like, a big one for me. I saw that in theaters, and he, you know, really stood out. And then the cable guy with Jim Carrey. But here's the thing that I realized, because I've seen many more of his films, and yet he never stands out for me. Like, he's always in these movies, but he's not the most interesting character. He's just there. I mean, even in the cable guy, you know, he's the put-upon character. So, you know, you don't really care. But he's Inspector Gadget he's not interesting it's all the special effects and they're not really that interesting so i i guess like i'm not a super fan of matthew broderick and yet i don't hate him he's just like a welcome presence but i I don't know what i get from him in most cases jeff do you have a deep connection to his uh body of work um, I don't know about deep connection. I feel like Matthew Broderick is one of those kind of classic examples, like Neil Patrick Harris or Fred Savage is another great example. So they so define themselves as that kind of quintessential teenage character that it was really hard for audiences to visualize them. And so, like you guys mentioned, like I think a lot of his movies suffered from that. Uh, and the interesting thing is that at some point later, he transitioned to doing a lot more stuff on the stage. So I knew like when they revived How to Succeed in business without really trying and I listened to that over and over and over again uh, and that's what led to him getting a role then with the producers and then eventually obviously they made the movie out of that and then like I feel like his second career kind of took place now with his whole adult career and it's it's a little bit different yeah now he's not usually the main character anymore he's usually like a side character the fascinating thing to me is that he was actually the first choice to be walt white on uh breaking bad and so what that would have done to his career all of a sudden we'd know him like that did he turn it down yes as I understand. Or either he turned it down or it like didn't work with a schedule or something like that. Between that and marrying Sarah Jessica Parker, he's making all the wrong choices. <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on. Although I, I thought it was interesting that at one point I believe he was engaged to his sister in this movie, Jennifer Grey. Yes, there was a dalliance. I believe they married for sentence. a year. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, until they had that unfortunate incident manslaughter yeah car wreck type thing that that probably is that where she got her nose fixed Uh, i think that was just a decision later on i I was told strictly people said mean things to her and she chose to change it i I never thought anything was wrong with her nose not at all though she was fine before i I, I can't even recognize her now when she shows up in those hallmark films oh by the way uh she's married to agent colson in real life yeah yeah which is awesome Although I would, I'd be willing to bet though too, like that you bring that up, is that that's probably a major factor too in his career. That was a life-changing moment for Absolutely. him. Absolutely, you guys don't was. know about that. So yeah, that's kind of a big deal. Oh, one thing I do want to throw out though too, this obviously really put him out in the zeitgeist. But then he did a number of other films around this time, and one of my favorite, we actually just watched it for a movie night. He did The Freshman with Marlon Brando, where he plays a very similar, a little bit more hapless character. But he has this amazing ability of likability and genuineness. And to put him and Brando together was just, for me, it's it's not a hilarious film and it's not a brilliant film. It's just a, it's just a charming film because I think he does charm very well. 
I remember that Disney Channel used to show that film all the time. In that film, Matthew Broderick was kind of like a blank slate that the audience could easily project themselves onto. Exactly. My point, yes, exactly. But I, I just watched that for the first time, just picked it up on VHS the other day and uh, enjoyed it. I, I'm right there with you. It's one of those things that's like, yeah, it's not laugh out loud funny, but it's just kind of a, hey, this is an interesting story. Speaking of interesting is the, the career of Alan Ruck, who played Cameron. I find him a, a fascinating character, especially the fact that he was 29 years old when he's filming this movie. <laughs> the beauty of Hollywood. Especially in the 80s, right? Where everybody was in their 40s playing high schoolers, <laughs> seemingly. But I just I just find him interesting because he's someone that is always working, he's always around, but this is almost like Matthew Broderick. This is kind of like the big role, unless, you know, you're a, a super deep Star Trek fan. Jeff, you want to tell us his place in the Star Trek universe? I can't. Did he have a cameo somewhere? Yeah, like he is in Generations. I remember that at the beginning of the film. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert: When William Shatner dies, he's there to witness it. Oh, Captain Harriman, I believe is the yeah, name. Which, yeah. <laughs> no, see, for me, I think what his later career, the two highlights was one, he's the nervous guy on the bus in Speed, and two, <laughs> he stole. Well, it's hard to steal the show, but in the early Spin City. He yes, was the sleazy whatever, and he was so good. That was his second career role, I think. Yeah, he was kind of like, you know, John Larroquette on Night Court. That's exactly. what he was. That's on a great City, idea. For sure. Good comparison. Uh, now, Mia Sarah is one of those, like, unless you're a super fan of Legend, I don't know <laughs> much you about are. her career. <laughs> I, I do remember or, there was there was a short-lived Batman-themed show on the WB called Birds of Prey, and she was Harley Quinn. Yes. She didn't go by that title. She was still Dr. Harleen Quinzel. But yes, I, I remember that briefly, yeah, just, you know, because it only lasted one season, right? It was really awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> terrible show. I was I, more I, excited yeah. about that because it had the girl from Starship Troopers in it. And I was like, oh, she's great. And I can't even remember her name now, so that tells you how great she was. But now, to me, the real star of this and the, the fall from grace is so sad. But Jeffrey Jones was an amazing comedic actor. I mean, he gave us some great performances in this film, in one of my favorites, a John Ritter film called Stay Tuned. I saw that one. Yeah, it's a great one um howard the duck howard the duck yes beetlejuice she took my eggs <laughs> and then yeah beetlejuice is the one for me where it, that was like his most bland performance but at the same time i was like oh he could be a normal guy okay yeah he's like the only likable character in that movie just from a perspective of you know aside from alec baldwin and, and gina davis but uh but yeah you know so obviously we don't need to get into all the details but his scandal was kind of like oh okay well that guy's a creep we won't be seeing anything from him anymore well that ixnay's bringing him back yeah sorry hopefully nobody wrote the room sequel <laughs> scratch that off my list completely in spite of all that i mean i know about his scandal and everything but even after that i had an idea to work him into my pitch and it just seemed too shoehorned and too unfeasible and would break <laughs> believability. I'll go into detail on what I would have done, but I, it's no longer part of my official pitch, if that makes any sense. Like, it'll be an addendum on the end of my pitch. Very well. <laughs> for all the Jeffrey Jones fans out there, exactly. the diehards that are hanging <laughs> in. But for you guys, I want to ask, because she's another comedic actress that was just in a lot of stuff. Do you guys have a point of reference for Edie McClurg outside of this film? Or is it just me? Um, I remember her from 
a bug's life. She's one of the people in charge of maintaining the line. But also a family favorite of ours is a movie called Airborne. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Airborne. Of course, yeah. Rollerblading film. <laughs> she's the aunt who uh, the main character moves in with. And she's married to Mr. Dewey from, from Save by, by the Bell. <laughs> Who is the poor man's Ben Stein, who is in this movie. But yeah, so she's great to me. I love Edie McClurg because she's in the original Pee-wee Herman show. Not Pee-wee's Playhouse, but the show that he used to do live at the Roxy Theater in L.A. There was like an HBO special of it and everything. I watched that so many times as a kid, but she's really funny in that. Plus, she's also the mother of the annoying neighbor Harriet on Small Wonder. She was Mrs. Brindle. She had her little catchphrase. She'd be like, no, 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 no. I love you some Edie McClurg. I'm just glad she's in this movie. If you're a big Elvira fan, too, she's the antagonist in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which is also very fun because she and Elvira, who's uh, Cassandra Peterson and Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, they were all in the Groundlings together. So that's why they kind of went into each other different projects over time is there anybody else that we feel like we should mention that makes an appearance because the cast of this film actually is pretty small but each person is significant all i can think of is that this was ben stein's first acting role he's always been an accredited economist that's his primary occupation studying the economy and economics and such and this opened the door for him and he started taking on many other monotone roles just for the (laughs) typecasting you know yeah, and, he, and he said he is open to his gravestone having Bueller Bueller written on it. Hey. <laughs> and the girl who raised her hand to explain where Ferris was, that's Christy Swanson, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's right. Oh. She's been interesting to follow on Twitter, to say the least. And uh, obviously worth mentioning that Charlie Sheen has a brief but memorable moment with Jeannie in the police station. So they get their moment. He's our our philosophical drug addict. (laughs) So he is pretty hilarious. He was winning. (laughs) But you guys, when you think back to this film, is there a specific moment? Because it's so quotable. But I think that's what it is, is this movie is pretty light on plot, generally speaking speaking i mean it's it's kind of just a series of events ferris bueller's in the title but it's not really his movie it's cameron's film cameron is the dynamic character well it's the age-old question of is this like does ferris bueller actually exist is that's what they've said is it a popular fight club fan theory exactly is it in cameron's mind did he create him because he's so spectacular is is he cameron's id that's just driving him to do these things which wouldn't actually, if you ask me, doesn't make any sense because the movie starts and ends without Cameron. And so then what what sense does that make? That's but he could just be imagining. He's like, this is what my favorite guy does when he's not around uh, me. This is I his life. Know. He's so clever. Well, then yeah. who is Sloan dating? Or is she a figment of Cameron's imagination? It's she would have to, to say, like, because I was thinking that, too. She's such a nod character as well that it makes me feel like she's just there to be pretty. So she absolutely could be just an imaginary person. He's just adding into the mix. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. <laughs> uh, but, but you did ask about uh, favorite quotes from this film. Yeah. Uh, it's a tradition in my family. Anytime we help each other out somebody will always just randomly express their gratitude by just going, <laughs> Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. <laughs> sure, yeah, classic. That's a great moment. Jeff, is it a Rooney line for you? 
since you portrayed the character, is that near and dear to your heart? I don't know that that has anything to do with it. I do. It is that sad part that that's a tough one. Like I love so many of Jeffrey Jones's performances and his characters that it does make it tough to still love those characters in quotes. And I mean, Jeff, I can I I have a pitch for you. By the way, we'll just go back. We'll do special editions of all his films. You take on the Jeffrey Jones role. Ah, still feels a little because it is all. the Jeffrey Jones role. So that's, <laughs> that's a little awkward. But for me. The funny thing is that having always watched this movie on television and usually sporadically, it it was probably only in the last several years that I actually saw that post credit scene where he comes out and stares at the camera and goes, what are you still doing here? Go home. It's over. And that's so brilliant. That's so awesome. Because again, I had never seen that before. And I I thought that was such a, and even call it a John Hughes moment. It's not. He doesn't have stuff like that in his other movies. We would have no Deadpool if we didn't have Ferris Bueller. The moment Deadpool strutted out in the bathroom, he didn't even have to say anything. I just lost it. Well, Jeff, and I think it's worth mentioning that, yes, I mean, Ferris Bueller inspired so many characters. I mean, there was a short-lived Ferris Bueller television show. The less said about that, the better. don't mention that. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We we don't need to bring that up. memory, stop. But just the archetype of that smooth, fast-talking character who always gets away with their schemes. I mean, number one for me, absolutely, Zach Morris, right? Saved by the Bell is basically a Ferris yeah. Bueller's Day oh, Off totally. series. Yeah. Uh, and Parker, I mean, Parker Lewis can't lose. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Love it. But at the same time, it's not like Ferris Bueller was the first. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Ferris Bueller follows a long line of even going back to like Charlie Chaplin and, you know, the, these classic silent movie people that would get away with everything. He's well, just kind of the one for our generation, I think. But, but I, th- I think there's a specific pattern of Ferris Bueller that is used in those shows. Just that mm-hmm. idea of breaking the fourth wall, being just kind of a narrator for the audience, but letting the audience in on your scheme and talking to them just being really serendipitous you know it's almost like he's got a magic wand on the world that makes him look different than the early silent film stars you know Mm. now i know for me the moment it's so short it's so small but i love just when genie is going down the hall that guy is collecting you know to save ferris and she just knocks the can out of his hand (laughs) you heartless wench (laughs) <laughs> that is like the best insult that's ever been created i very feel very like... <laughs> and, and when i saw I that like i was Adam like maybe put him in a corner <laughs> oh there oh. you go <laughs> by the way i have two copies of dirty dancing on vhs and they're only slightly different it's very weird it's a box variation about the dolby stereo in one version it's weird anyway but i guess we can't go out without mentioning also that that moment in the water tower itself inspired an actual ska band in the 90s called Save Ferris. <laughs> so we wouldn't have that cover of Come On I Lead or The World Is New. And our world would be different. Because yeah. <laughs> we still listen to them today. Don't Some we? of us. Oh, how about for you, Jeremy? Well, I mean, there's a few that it's Ferris trying to give life wisdom. Not that I condone fascism or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should just believe in himself. I quote John Lennon. I don't believe in Beatles. I believe in myself. Good point there. After all, he was the walrus. I could be the walrus. I'd still have to bum rides off people. So he, he's talking all whimsical and this philosophical thing. And then he winds it up like, eh, but I'm still just a kid and I'd have to bum rides off people. So you're like that he's not totally up his own butt. <laughs> right. 
Like, he can talk up there with the philosophical and get deep. Yeah, and then he can just throw a joke in at the end. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes a long way, because that, that is a major criticism for a lot of people of this film, right? It's like, well, he's a jerk. He's smarmy, and he just fools people, and he gets his way all the time. You know, and it's one of those things like, yes, that's true, but he is kind of a sweetheart about it. And really... Who is he hurting? I mean, other than maybe the whole situation Rooney with the car. Rooney is probably getting fired. Yeah, but that's <laughs> no, his fault. He's he overreacting. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, Paris is fooling him in some ways. He's being a little dishonest, but he's not, like, setting Rooney up. He's like, yeah, I'm egging you on. Come to my house, Rooney. I dare you. Break it enter. My sister will kick you in the face three times. Which is worth mentioning, too, is that, like many John Hughes films, actually, this film was reportedly written in, like, six days uh 19 was it 19? It was 19. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've seen conflicting reports. Fast. But, but it's one of those things that, like, I feel this movie, they say that a lot of it was improvised on set. And I think, again, like, it is just a happy accident. A lot of people say that about Ghostbusters, too. Like, Ghostbusters was not working for the longest time. And they just managed to edit it just right. Say, with Star Wars, George Lucas's first wife, she saved that movie by all reports. You know, like, she was the one who managed to make it something watchable. So I, I think this is a movie that definitely in the editing, John Hughes has said that's where he was able to make it into a movie that made sense or was at least something you would want to watch. Because, you know, again, it's not super deep, but it's got its moments and it's just a fun ride to go on. Now, that being said, if it was written in 19 days, I think everybody could go easy on us for our sequel pitches. <laughs> Whatever amount of time we spent uh, figuring it all out. And I, I will mention that Matthew Broderick has said he is not interested in ever putting together a sequel or participating because he feels like it would cheapen the character. Alan Ruck, on the other hand, has said, oh, I'd be up for it. You know, I got some ideas myself. So <laughs> either way, you know, I'm sure Cameron could come back for a solo film and maybe we'll get that. Let's see. Jeff, actually, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, if Matthew Broderick isn't going to be available for this, it's I mean, not... French Stewart is still oh, available. Famous oh, <laughs> replacement for Matthew Broderick. Oh, true. All right. So I didn't have as witty of a name, although... The Quickening. The Quickening. There you go. Ferris Bueller's <laughs> Days 2, The Quickening. So that could always be a sequel, but I don't really have any other name. But Ferris Bueller's <laughs> Day 2, I don't know. Lacks a little punch, but I'm okay with it. So my sequel takes place six years later. Ferris has graduated from college and moved back in with his parents. He doesn't have a job because his parents keep saying, oh, he's got so much potential and he's got too much potential and blah, 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 blah. So he doesn't, you know, get like a job at McDonald's or something like that. But he doesn't quite have enough gumption to go for the jobs that have all this potential and stuff like that. So now he's still doing a lot of his same shenanigans, hanging around his own high school. And he's kind of like the big guy that kind of shows up at high school events like, that's Ferris Bueller, that's Ferris Bueller. And he's kind of living the high life, basking in his former glory until one day he overhears some of the cooler kids or the ones that he thought were really into him whispering afterwards, can you believe how lame this guy is? He graduated six years ago and he's still hanging out here. And that just devastates him. So he 
falls in depression. He goes home and he just doesn't leave his room. He just stays in bed all day long, is just depressed. So his parents are worried. So the first thing they said is that we need to call his old buddy Cameron. So they call Cameron. And for one reason or another, Cameron is not available to help out. So then they call his ex-girlfriend Sloane, who's still in college. And Sloane says, no, I, I can't help him out either, which only leaves one person left. And that's Jeannie. And Jeannie's a senior in college. And she obviously doesn't want to help out Ferris because Ferris has had everything come to him. Why should she help him out? Because she's working so hard in her college, blah, blah, blah. But her parents bribe her with car something that she wants they're gonna bribe her with that so she brings her now boyfriend which is charlie sheen who calls himself edge even though his real name is alan they'll tease him about that at some point so they decide that their plan to try and get ferris back up and running is to do what they did last time is that they've heard about the legends of ferris's day off you see the city and you go to a game and you go and you see the sears tower so they do all that sort of stuff and nothing seems to work he's just as lifeless and just nothing is worthwhile but they do run into Cameron and they find out that Cameron is now a grouchy executive at his dad's firm. And then they also end up running into Sloan uh, on break from college that she has a very controlling boyfriend. And that's why neither of them were able to help out Ferris. So Ferris, that in, in uh, does actually energize him. And so he can is convinced that they need to then rescue both Cameron and Sloan. So now the next part of the movie is basically, and I would even see maybe it goes even to black and it says like part one, Cameron. And so the strategy for Cameron is they ask if he can go out to lunch. And then there's three. I, I, I wasn't creative enough to come up with uh, fantastic only Ferris type moments. But there'd be three separate fantastic Ferris moments. I wouldn't want to reuse the same ones from the first one, like where he was on the, the, the big screen at the, the baseball game and when he was in the you know singing in the parade. But something along those lines. There's these three only Ferris moments. And by the time that that third one happens, Cameron. Cameron, the light comes back into his eyes and the old Cameron kind of re-emerges, which leads us to part two, Sloan. And same sort of a thing, although this time it's that old trope of digging up the dirt on her boyfriend to let her know that her boyfriend is actually a jerk, which leads to part three, Ferris. And part three is kind of like they have another kind of heart to heart. But this time, instead of it being Cameron, it's Cameron and Sloan and Jeannie and maybe even Alan, although they're kind of teasing him. What does he know? But about what he's really afraid of is actually becoming an adult and that becoming an adult doesn't mean that you don't have fun or you're mature or you're serious but it means there's actually consequences for your actions and so that's that resolution as ferris comes to that realization so maybe the credits or something like that shows Ferris moving out, Cameron quits his job, and the two of them move in together, and then Sloan and Ferris start dating again. All right. Ferris Bueller's Day Off too. The quickening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, Jeff, this is interesting. I'm, I'm going to jump in here because mine actually is going to clarify something from Jeff's pitch that's very important. There's a lot of diehard fans of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and they know that Charlie Sheen's character, though unnamed in the film, actually has a name and a history in this universe. It was from the, the script, that, but just got cut. Oh, because the credits list, literally list him as bull. Boy. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm he, hoping. he's basically the Cameron to Ferris before Cameron came into the picture. Right. There is a whole story to be told there. His name is Garth Volbeck. Okay. Volbeck. 
<laughs> it's a great that. name, and we're going to get into that. I, I have decided to tell the tale of Garth Volbeck and that forgotten friendship in a prequel. But before that, I want to tell you, I did have two sequel ideas that I scrapped very quickly. The first was called Ferris Bueller Fights Back, where Ferris <laughs> moves to New York City to seek his fortune on Wall Street, but ends up befriending tenants of an apartment building owned by a slumlord, and he helps them outsmart the landlord to get their dignity back. Lots of Home Alone-style gags, you know? So I said, that's not gonna work. And then there was Ferris Bueller, First Contact. One word. Aliens. <laughs> Did not go that direction, no. <laughs> I decided to look back into this history, and I give you Ferris Bueller's Last Dance. 13-year-old Ferris is an 8th grader at Shermer Middle School, and after years of paying his dues academically, is determined to turn this Illinois institution of learning into his own private clubhouse. After inviting the girls' swim team to a private party in the teacher's lounge, Ferris is surprised to find that it's already been infiltrated by a charismatic new kid named Garth and a group of female students from the local all-girls Catholic school. When the boys realize that each of their diversions to trick the teachers into vacating the premises have now been rendered moot by the other, they brainstorm together quickly and throw an impromptu Teacher's Appreciation Day party to get themselves off the hook. After this successful collaboration, and finding that they each share a passion for James Bond, movies, the two friends begin challenging each other to missions, like Garth rigging the basketball hoops of the gym to remote control, or Ferris changing the cafeteria supply order and menu to include filet mignon. Ferris finds Garth to be a wise man, spouting off pearls of wisdom that help him calm occasional outbursts of anxiety over their schemes. Garth is very guarded about his home life, however, going silent whenever family is mentioned, but he always lights up when he shares his dream of dancing on American bands stand so his mom could be proud of him. When Ferris finds out that Dick Clark is bringing his long-running music show to Chicago, he promises to get Garth there. But during a scheme to rig the election for 8th grade class president in favor of a write-in candidate, Freddy Krueger, they are caught by a girl named Heather who is obviously attracted to the boys but turns them in anyway since she was the favorite to win the election. While stuck in the administration office, Ferris sneaks a look at the permanent record and finds out that Garth has a reputation for being the bad kid in his previous schools, with reports of how he once got a Spanish teacher deported and burying a principal's car, but also his tragic family history of abuse at the hands of his father, and learning that his mother abandoned the family because of it. After the boys concoct a scheme to get out of school for the day to attend American Bandstand, which involves a pack of bull mastiffs and a bunch of stakes taped under class desks, they hop on a downtown Chicago bus, where during the journey, Ferris leads the passengers in a lip-synced rendition of Good Golly Miss Molly while Garth struts his stuff. At the taping, they run into Heather, who reveals that her uncle is a camera operator at the TV station, so she was able to get the day off to be a part of the event. Using this connection to pull some strings, Garth gets plenty of screen time during the show and is able to show his moves off, which catches the attention of his father at work, who is furious and makes his way to the station. Then, the show stops and Dick Clark announces that they have a special request revealing Garth's mother is there, which was proudly orchestrated by Ferris. But Garth is actually shocked by her appearance because he was told by his dad that his mother was dead. 
A tearful reunion takes place as the mother and son slow dance together in the spotlight. But after the cameras turn off, tragedy strikes as Garth's father storms in, demanding to take the boy home, stating he got custody because his wife was a drug addict who abandoned them to try and hit it big as a showgirl in Las Vegas. The scene gets ugly as Garth's father drags him away, staring with angry tears at his friend who caused all this to happen. Leaving the TV studio alone, Ferris admits that he has no clue about life outside his idyllic suburban bubble. He tells Heather all this and the feelings of his heart, and she offers to give him a ride home with her uncle. At school the next day, Heather is announced as the class president, but Garth is nowhere to be found. We see in montage the rest of the year continue on with Garth's chair at various classes staying empty. Then, Ferris notices on community billboards that there is a boy who's gone missing. While out at a family dinner, Ferris catches sight of Garth hanging out with a bunch of punks, looking obviously under the influence and getting hassled by the cops, but dancing away from them in a game of keep away using some of his signature moves. Garth gives a brief moment of acknowledgement to Ferris as he's put in a squad car as if to say, this is me now. And there you go, the tragic ending to Ferris Bueller's last day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's how we do it around here. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's how some of us do it <laughs> Colton can you pull us out of this funk uh, yeah I think my pitch will be a little more uplifting I think <laughs> <laughs> let's go for it it's the okay. low bar that's a low bar <laughs> here we go I want to have this sequel be in real time I want it to be modern 33 years later whatever the time this film happens to be made whether it's 35 years or 40 years have it stay modern Time has progressed naturally. After high school, they've gone to separate colleges and gone their separate ways. Ferris does end up marrying Sloane, and they have a family together. And Ferris's wheeling and dealing makes him into a powerful corporate juggernaut, and he's making his way up the ranks in his corporation. And Cameron, that day, changed his life, the first film. And he becomes Tony Robbins times 10, one of the world's biggest, most inspirational, most well-known motivational speakers. And no matter where he goes, no matter what country he's in, he's instantly recognized and he's beloved for his incredible knowledge and sage advice and his easygoing manner and just having everything work out for him. This is Cameron we're talking about. That's how much that day changed his life. But as the years have gone by, this actually began immediately after graduation. Ferris and Cameron have gone their separate ways and they virtually never talk anymore. And Cameron actually never married and settled down. He actually became quite the swinging bachelor in the ensuing years. Finally, one day, Ferris is up for a big promotion. At this point in Ferris's career, all the magic has gone out of him. He hardly spends any time with his family. He's not the same chipper person he used to be. He is completely dragged into the behemoth of corporate success to the point that it's like he's a soulless golem. And to make matters worse, over the years, Cameron has tried to contact him several times, and it's always been unfruitful. He could never get past Ferris' secretary, because Ferris is always so busy trying to make a corporate titan of himself. And about a year before the film really starts, Cameron flat out stopped trying. But also, more importantly, the world doesn't really even know where Cameron is. The world's most popular motivational speaker is all of a sudden off the grid. So after a year of mystery, all of a sudden Cameron schedules a speaking engagement in Chicago. And this makes the news. Oh my gosh, Cameron Fry, world famous motivational speaker. He's suddenly scheduled his first public appearance, his first auditorium packing spectacular show, whatever you want to call it, for the first time. And it's being scheduled in Chicago and it's today and it's a very last minute scheduling. And Ferris sees this and he goes, hmm. And then he goes back to his routine. And then all of a sudden, the loudspeakers at the building he works at get commandeered. And he hears a very familiar Cameron's voice singing, Let My Ferris Go. 
He comes and he fetches him directly from his office. Cameron takes Ferris by the hand and he basically drags him out of the building. And I'm adamant about this. They don't just go and repeat what happened in the first film. New adventures going through the city of Chicago. Try to come up with new and original stuff. Don't go back to the same restaurant again. If they do revisit anything, it has to be brief and it has to be commentary on how things have changed. They have many deep conversations about how much life has changed over the past 30 plus years. How Ferris just isn't the same person he used to be because he can't be the same person he used to be. In an earlier pitch you mentioned adult real world consequences in comparison to the freewheeling nature of being a kid. And they visit the Sears Tower again just so they can comment on how disappointing life is, Ferris, that is. Because Sears Towers of Chicago used to be the tallest building in the world, now it's not anymore. And how the reason he is the way he is is because he always has to be the best, and it's disappointing when you're not the best. And the world is competitive, and the world grinds you down. And most of the time, Cameron is a pretty good listener, but he still interjects from time to time to offer sage advice. The film reaches its end... Shortly before, let's call this the climax of the film. Shortly before Cameron is to take the stage at his motivational speaker show, he takes a detour to his childhood home, and he takes Ferris with him. And they go there, and they talk about that day they had back in 1986. And finally, Ferris works up the courage to ask him, you know, how come we we haven't been talking since then? And Cameron lets him know, you know, I, I could never get past your secretary. You were always so crazy busy. And finally, Ferris asks him, okay, then that explains why we couldn't hang out over the past 30 years. But what about the past year where no one in the world knew where you were? Cameron gets quiet and contemplative as he picks his words carefully. He grabs a tarp that's covering something and he pulls the tarp back. And there's the red Ferrari. You can never tell that anything bad ever happened to it. It's completely restored to exactly the way it was. And he opens up and he says, that day changed my life so much. After you left, I had that talk with my father. And since then, we've never been closer. And for the past 30 plus years, he has been my best friend in the whole world. You gave me the courage to stand up to him, to make him respect me. And we have been great friends ever since. And we spent years fixing this car and restoring it to exactly the way it is. A little over a year ago, my father passed away, and I've been spending this past year mourning for him. I didn't want to go back and face the public unless I was at 100%. What drew me out of hiding, though, and this is a detail I haven't hammered out yet, was that he found out just how bad Ferris' situation is. Ferris has become so obsessed with being a corporate titan, his marriage to Sloan is in trouble. His relationship with his kids is in trouble. And Cameron said, today, I basically wanted to do for you what you did for me in 1986. I want to stop you from becoming to your children what my father was to me. And then Cameron goes and does his show. And while he's on stage, he's doing his generic motivational speaker routine. But he's also saying things that have a double meaning. It'll mean one thing to a general audience who doesn't know him personally. And it means another to Ferris, who has been there with him throughout the whole day, talking about life and how much everything has changed. And the final shot of the film is Ferris going home, embracing Sloan, and symbolically with his briefcase, tossing some papers into the shredder, letting Sloan know that things are going to be different and that she's going to be his priority again. Uh, we'll get to the addendum later, but uh, yeah, that's it. What do you guys think? How Ferris got his groove back. All right. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I really actually, because yeah, it gives you that happy ending for everybody where at the end of this movie, you know, you, you don't know. I mean, that thread left dangling about what was to become of Cameron I think that's really interesting that you decided to answer that the idea that I went back on I just felt like it was too forced I wanted Mr. Rooney to show up as one of Ferris's bosses in the corporation I just thought no you're not going to go no matter how many decades you have you don't go from high school principal to being at the top of a corporate ladder 
and just to boss Ferris around again. No, that's astronomical. That that cannot happen. That will destroy all suspension of disbelief. So I removed that. The other idea that I thought was at least optional was maybe not the singing on the parade float again, but some big spectacle set piece like that that would involve lots of people dancing. Having Mr. Rooney show up, not as a main part, but just another person in the crowd dancing, and Cameron remarking to Ferris, wow, you somehow managed to become more square than Rooney. How did that happen? <laughs> that, that was a throwaway thing that I, I would have considered doing, but... All right, now I do have to I have to clarify one thing here, that is because Jeff mentioned it and so did you, but I believe that Rooney, he's Mr. Rooney because he's the dean of students. He's in charge of attendance. He's not the principal oh. of the school. But I think I think everybody just assumes authority figure from the school is going to be principal. But again, just for those who are screaming out there, they're like, he's just the dean of students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, the other thing, this is just, especially for an upcoming guest who's returning to the podcast, Paxton Holly, but War Games. I just feel like we oh, can't yeah. have a Matthew Broderick oh, film you. and not just say War Games. So, <laughs> War Games, I said. I'm a little it. ashamed that I didn't think of that. Wow. <laughs> Save. None of us. Nobody mentioned it. I was like, we need to just throw it out out there all right jeremy take it away let's hear your pitch it does seem like we do have quite similar themes developing amongst all of them all right ferris is in present day now 30 plus years after his fateful day off ferris is wasting away in a cubicle as he has been for the last 20 years after he bounced from job to job for a decade after high school Cameron is a leading lawyer of a high-powered firm in New York, having left the family, the family business, and all the hometown drama in the rear view, Ferris and his hijinks included. Sloan and Ferris drifted apart during college when she moved away, but after her husband cheated on her a decade into their marriage, she dropped everything and took off to L.A. to take up fashion and modeling, now a strong single mama bear. A Halloween-time Bueller family funeral, the oblivious Papa Bueller, brings the gang back to Chicago to reconnect. Ferris's mother mentions something to Cameron that gets him thinking. After the funeral, after the family and friends have left, a van squeals into the driveway, throws the door open, and masked men grab Ferris, throw a bag on his head, and toss him into the back. The van tears off down the highway, stopping off in the farmlands of Ohio, dropping Ferris off in the middle of a corn maze. (laughs) When all Fear Farm hell breaks loose, zombies, chainsaws, werewolves, and more chasing this man through the maze. Once he reaches the exit, he's greeted by a grinning Cam, Garth, and Sloan, (laughs) all three laughing at his panting breathing. They continue on to have a wild weekend of catching up in Atlantic City, full of hijinks, wild times, and reunions in this Ferris Bueller's kidnapping? <laughs> no, Ferris that's Bueller that's too on the point. Ferris Bueller's cord hellscape. <laughs> Just say it. Yeah, no. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's break. Oh, there we go. Sabbatical. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> this is going to be a fateful vote here. Unless we all pick a different pitch, somebody's pitch will win. Jeff, where do you fall? Dang, man, this is a tough one. Because, yeah, I feel like, like you're saying, Jeremy, they might have similar themes, but I feel like they have very different tones. (laughs) They Uh, do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, there's definitely elements that I, I definitely resonate with with all of them, but shoot. 
I think I'm going to go with yours, Jeremy, because I kind of like the idea of just the reunion. And and I know, like, like I've always thought ever since you brought it up, Adam, talking about you always love about sequels. What have they been doing in the time since? And it seems like that's a, a big thing that you would cover in yours. So I'm going that direction. Ooh, interesting. All right, Adam. Oh, uh, well, it's it's a hard choice. I agree with Jeff. I mean, there's a lot of areas to go here, but I mean, honestly, simply for the explanation of that, the metaphor and everything of rebuilding the relationship, rebuilding the car in Colton's pitch with Cameron. I mean, that was powerful to me. And I just like that idea that he's going to return the favor. He's paying it forward, going to make the world a better place because of what Ferris gave him. So I got to go with Colton on this. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention the title is Cameron Fry's Day Off. I wanted the whole thing to be an inversion. Okay. Mm. All right, Colton. So I cannot vote for myself. I have to appreciate the Hades out of Adam's guts for not being afraid to go dark, <laughs> to go for an ending that's challenging for the audience. So I'm going to lean towards Adam's pitch. Wow. Bring it home, Jeremy. Yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> Wait, you want me to tie this up? Like, <laughs> I know, it, don't it, do the it. The cards have fallen that way. I mean, there's elements. Fuck you, man. There there's are no elements from all of us. All of these. Oh, yes. Know. Yes, we could. <laughs> Come on, this is what we do best here. All right, I'm going to go Jeff so oh. we all can incorporate some things. Oh. I love the pity vote, baby. That's what I live for. <laughs> now, where to begin? I, I think what could actually work really well, just like my immediate thought, is if we use colton's framework you mean the emotional beats like well yeah like if we're saying where are those characters at and what have they been doing so ferris did kind of get the life sucked out of him just as the decades went on and then cameron was on a very different trajectory if we started with that because we could easily jeremy put your day of fun and excitement with all those characters into the middle of colton's film which he didn't have the, the day of fun that wasn't explained right. at all i had trouble with that i'm not gonna lie <laughs> I want that. I just did not know how to enumerate it. And then, I mean, we could obviously, within that, if you're saying, Jeremy, that Garth is a part of that crew, it's everybody's going to be like, huh? And then there would have to be some sort of flashback, a, a less depressing flashback to <laughs> my pitch. Well, not necessarily. His backstory could be depressing. That that's could be true. the thing, too. Then that's where the combination kind of comes in, is that it's, it ends up being assembling the dream team to rescue Ferris as opposed mm -hmm. to Ferris rescuing us. Right. So maybe even the backstory or the in-between story of like what's been going on, like where has Sloan gone and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because I, I have a hard time believing they actually got married because that just seems unlikely. I mean, it felt like a, a high school fling. You know, he's feeling dedicated in the moment, but he was going to graduate. She was still going to have another year of high school. That's not saying much. I mean, I knew plenty of people that were dating high schoolers when they were in college. Was well, not me, by the and way. And not just the teachers. Oh! No! <laughs> Whoa! Shots fired. Yeah, because I, I, I like the idea that Cameron is the one that got successful, got powerful, and has the ability to bring everybody together because Ferris did so much for him. So that that's very good. Um, now, the... Other element that I felt was missing from all of our pitches, nobody mentioned Jeannie, really. Yeah, no. And so I felt like <laughs> an important piece for her would have to be that 
you know, as Ferris has gone downhill over the years, I like to think that they reconciled at some point, you know, just with maturity. But she kind of has a heart to heart with him at some point where she's like, look, all I ever wanted for you when we were kids was for you to settle down and stop being so freewheeling and thinking like you had the world on a string. And now I see where you're at and it breaks my heart. Well, except for she's also the younger sister, though. Right. So whatever I wanted for you, it's kind of it's almost more like the roles have reversed. I would think that she was living in Ferris's shadow and now and and now it's reversed. Right. And that's why I was thinking, like, that's kind of something she's going to have to get over. So in my pitch, it was Ferris's mother that mentioned something to Cameron. But maybe it's Jeannie. I think so. And then she's part of the plot. Definitely. Now, this is I right now. I feel like we have not worked any element yet of Jeff's pitch in there. So, Jeff, is there a piece you are seeing that would work well that we haven't mentioned? Mine was kind of both of these, because mine was, we're ultimately saving Ferris, but then we're saving everybody else, and then that ends up saving Ferris. So Mm. it's kind of that same, we're doing that same sort of a thing. So at least for me, I feel like getting the gang back together, that's kind of that, that element. I feel like two would be the how. For me, I think that the main thrust of the movie would be the how and that the power, at least if we're going to do it in the same mold as the first movie, is that so then like Colton was talking about, about those those serious heavy uh, conclusions they come to, that would kind of come at the end and then the bulk of the movie would be the, the hijink. Yeah, I mean, agreed. I mean, although I think it's important, Jeff, and again, this could be another flashback. We could have several kind of moments of flashbacks to show us how he got there because I think... When you have that beat in your pitch about he was the loser, you know, the Matthew McConaughey, if you will, in Days to Confused, who's still hanging around with high school kids, even though he graduated several years before. That kind of thing where he finally gets the realization, oh, I am a loser. Why am I letting this be my great moment in life? I feel like that's a powerful moment for him that could really, like, just change his attitude completely and put him more into the obsessive focus on success rather than how he was before. You know, that kind of breaks him in a way. And so I I think that's important to have that moment in there. So I think if we're going to pull anything, you know, outside of general themes, I think that would be great. So then you're saying the the how of their day. What is their day? Now, Jeremy, black bags over the head, very visually stunning. I don't know if if the corn hellscape is going to make people excited. What do you guys think? Is that too jarring? Well, like he was saying, it was all, it was, see, I thought when you were saying they were actual zombies, but no, you were talking about it's it's a prank yeah. that they're pulling it's, on. Yeah. It's like going to a fear farm. Right. You'd have but how did they get from fear Ohio farm? to Atlantic City? It's a it's a twelve hours. hour drive from yeah. Chicago to Atlantic City. Like so they can do that. But you said you said it was an Ohio cornfield. So right. Like, oh. So they drive <laughs> on the highway for a little while. <laughs> That's really like catching you got to get a moving game. along the way type deal. Do you guys like the idea that everybody is already there or should it be more of a it is a little bit of a road trip. So they're actually picking up like Cameron has set up specific people along the way so maybe he isn't married to sloan but then they find sloan you know in her modeling career or whatever it is that she's doing and so they they pick her up i mean she's been made aware of it but it's like this special moment she's got a smile on her face she's ready you know and there is not much out there by chicago dude if you're just gonna be doing a road trip you're going through (laughs) the cornfields i don't know what 
And there's Sloan. She works in Nebraska now. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the cornfield's a good starting point anyway. I think it does I mean, just we're not, have to be. We're sh- not doing field of dreams here, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> like where you go from station to station yeah. and pick up or help somebody randomly along the well, way. But that's what I'm saying. I think it would just be brief. It's like, here's the people, and now what do we do with them? But I don't like the idea of everybody just standing there. And he's like, huh? Like, I think it's more fun to introduce them and give them their big reveal rather than just like, here's a lineup. Isn't it exciting to see everybody together, especially Garth? That's why you kind of give them a little cameo at the funeral that was part of the story that brought everybody back together. Right. And then if you have like, because I was thinking like what Colton was saying about having Cameron being kind of like the driving thrust to it. Is mm-hmm. it, so then he's the one that's assembling the team, so to speak. So he's going to get them all to say, like, hey, we got to save Ferris. And is that going to be the name in the movie? Do you think that should just be the title is Save Ferris? Oh, there you go. Oh, that would hit a major nostalgic, uh, in a good way, yeah. a good nostalgic yeah. nerve. Well, yeah. it'd Which be very you... Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think you have to. Like like you were saying, Colton, I, I mean, I agree you don't want it just to turn into we're going to do the exact same thing again. But for the nostalgia's sake, you have to throw them some little bones at least. Well, and speaking of which, Jeff, just going back to the moment where somebody is talking about Ferris being a loser, it has to be the guy who was holding the same Ferris can has turned on him now. You know, like <laughs> he was a freshman when Ferris was a senior, you know, so now it's three years on and he's like, ah, oh, you know, that guy's a loser. Nobody's going to recognize it, but there's got to be some way to indicate it, you know, that it's him. Do the, If we're going to film that today, how do you do that in a flashback? Yeah. You guys, we've just seen several films with some pretty epic de-aging, so I think they've got the technology down at this point. This is not Tron Legacy anymore. We've moved beyond. Well, and there's the other thing, like, we could tell it in flashback, but in a cartoonish flashback. That's true. Or you're literally just seeing everybody from behind, but in their iconic clothing or something. Right. Something along those lines. But now let's brainstorm here. If we need to pull up a Chicago travel guide. I feel like we got to figure out <laughs> something that they do. I mean, and it could be stuff that's really in any city, but I feel like at least people who know the world of comedy and know the history of Saturday Night Live and all those things, the big cultural touchstone in Chicago is second city which is like a major comedy hub everybody has come out of there you know including people like nowadays that are huge like tina fey and everybody else are you saying you want to just keep the whole movie in chicago i feel like part of it needs to be i mean we we could even simplify this a little better and just say it's it's a cornfield just outside of the suburbs for the hellscape type thing and then you are tied to that cornfield well (laughs) i'm I'm trying to make this play a little easier and then there's a flight from chicago to atlantic city type deal just to get everybody out of town do something other than in chicago yeah what if we don't do chicago because now honestly i don't know about atlantic city because i mean i know it's kind of like a 
party place and that sort of a thing like that. I, I've been to Atlantic City. There's not much there. It's the Reno <laughs> of the East Coast. You know what I'm saying? It's it's not that exciting. So then what if they went to like New York City or like Philadelphia or what? we pick a different city and we do... Yeah, like I, I feel like it needs to be less New York because that's okay. been done for the history of cinema <laughs> but i like the idea yeah. of philadelphia or another what portland if, maine i mean yeah where, how well, random are we, you wanting to look what if we pick a city that no one they pick like newark and they're like we're gonna go to newark and but it's that like maybe is there a way that we could pick a city that would be lame but the magic of ferris or whatever is what transcends that imagine being magically whisked away to delaware hi I'm in Delaware. Yeah. They go to, like, Portland, Bangor, Maine, or... Uh... I mean, Portland would probably be fun, because there's a lot of weirdos there. That's Portland, Maine, Maine right? Not not Oregon. Oregon. I'm not, I don't want Maine. What are we going to Maine for? I mean, we're already in Illinois. I mean, you could just go to Milwaukee. Exactly. Oh, perfect. Milwaukee. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Miliwake. Exactly. If we're just going to keep the Wayne's World references going. Okay, you got, is that what you want? We're going to find what there is to do in Milwaukee? Yeah, if you can make Ferris, Ferrisize it. I feel like this is a pitch for another podcast where you plan a trip in a city that nobody would want to go to and you somehow try to make it fun. This could be just a spinoff that we do and Sequel Quest is over. I don't know. You know where they didn't go was a zoo. So they could go to the Milwaukee County Zoo. It's a 200-acre wildlife park with a carousel. They'll get carefree on the carousel. There you go. All right. 12 things to do in Milwaukee. Milwaukee's lovely lakefront. There's a donut boat cruise, guys. The donut boat cruise. They have to go on that. Excellent. The Harley-Davidson Museum. City Hall. The Pabst (laughs) Theater and Pabst Mansion. The The Potawatomi Hotel and Casino. The Domes. Discovery World. Boner. Boener. Boener. Botanical Gardens. And Marcus Center for the Performing Arts. My apologies if we have any listeners that live in Milwaukee. Yeah. We love your city. It's a beautiful place. Here we go. Here's the idea. We're going to pitch this movie, and we're also going to pitch it out to the cities to place bids on where <laughs> yeah. Ferris should go. And that way, whichever travel agency can put together the best plan, that's what city will go to. Yes, and that'll be like the hashtag is, you know, Save Ferris Milwaukee, Save Ferris Dunbar, Wisconsin. I don't know if that's a real place, but it sounds like it would be. Then it'll end up being, you know, Preston, Idaho. What? Filmed in the same location as Napoleon Dynamite? Okay. You know, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good way to go, Jeremy. You're right. For the marketing, for the buildup, everybody would be super on board. They're going to get creative. But now I really want to go to Milwaukee, by the way. (laughs) I want to go on that donut boat ride. (laughs) All right, Colton, is there anything you feel is missing at this point? Is there another element that we need to introduce? Or are you feeling pretty confident about Save Ferris? First off, I I love the whole idea of we need to do a whole other podcast of... uh, uh, actually getting a physical location. I'm like, wow, we went from sequel quest to an actual physical quest. <laughs> nice. Scavenger um, quest. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that because I thought of something uh, while you guys were talking that I thought would be interesting. In the inversion, somebody else besides Ferris needs to start talking to the audience. And it needs to be acknowledged that they're annoyed that, 
oh, I have to talk to you now because Ferris doesn't talk to you anymore. Something along those lines. I think if written right and done in a throwaway manner that wasn't too self-satisfied, I think that would be a nice little funny throwaway line. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on. It's already in the cast here. Tiger blood. Absolutely. It's Charlie Sheen, 100%. I mean, because he's kind of the weirdo outsider anyway, who wasn't the main group in the first film. So the idea that he's there and he's just dropping in like non sequiturs and other randomness, I think people would get a kick out of that. That's what he's known for. So should the little day voyage, whatever, be kind of shot like The Office with like dead pans to the camera and... I don't know if we want to take it that far. I mean, it loses its cinematic edge, I feel. Because, like, the breaking the fourth wall is still a cinematic concept instead of making it a television or documentary-style concept. I don't think we're taking it that far out of the narrative idea. Although, I was just thinking of this, too. If we don't even keep it in one city, I mean, it'd be be good with our marketing plan and everything, but, I mean, what if Garth is now a helicopter pilot, or he flies jets, you know, so they could literally, they can (laughs) hop to different cities, you know, they could get from Ohio to Milwaukee very quickly, you know, those types of things. Maybe that could Well, I mean, if Cameron's the rich lawyer type, he could have a private jet type thing. Are we going to decide on that? I think he's still the motivational speaker. He's the Tony Robbins. Oh, well, he could still be a, a totally rich office keister type guy there. We don't really have to do much casting, although I'm sure there's a lot of actors who were inspired by this film that would want to be in it you know i have to figure like ryan reynolds is just going to want to show up for some cameo whether it's deadpool or otherwise because he's kind of a hundred percent ferris bueller wishes he was but i i'm wondering too could we get eating mcclurg in this somehow just for something very basic the flashback like was talked about or even if it was just the brief trip back to their high school and that conversation like maybe she's still working there so she makes some funny comments to them as she passes and by. And she's set a new record for the number of pencils she can put into her head. <laughs> hey, that could be it right there. She could be at the Smithsonian. You know, there's an exhibit dedicated <laughs> to her accomplishment. And then, as far as directors go, I mean, we're in a place, obviously, John Hughes no longer with us. I'm wondering, is there a director that we feel like is the spiritual successor to John Hughes? The obvious answer is the one with the movie in theaters, Spider-Man Far From Home, John Watts. I, I can get behind that. A part of the spark of Ferris is how dialogue-driven the franchise is. Quentin Tarantino, that's your pick. <laughs> Somebody who is less interested in creating punchy action. Well, it, there's really no action. I mean... Wait, Jeremy, have you abandoned the hellscape? <laughs> I mean, hey, no, that, that can there. be a guest director. That can be a B, <laughs> a B director. We get James Wad for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Jeremy's holding fast to Hellscapes and John Watts. So outside of that, I I think we have a nice situation set up for Ferris. He will be saved. The world will smile again. And that's wonderful. So maybe Matthew Broderick would be on board for this version. So this is the end of our journey with Cameron and Ferris. Thank you so much, Colton, for bringing this up and suggesting it. Great discussion. Been looking forward to it for a long time. But while we are leaving our boys behind, we are continuing our journey with Sloane as Mia Sarah 
stars in our next film subject. That's right. When we come back to you with our episode in August, this is going to be very exciting for you. We are covering Time Cop. Yes, the Jean-Claude Van Damme time travel action flick. We have a returning guest, Paxton Hawley, who was on our episode for Rad and The Shadow, and he's just a lot of fun. He's got a great podcast called i read movies and he actually recently covered the time cop movie novelization plenty to talk about there if you can believe it so he's going to be coming in he's got some ideas for a prequel sequel or reboot so tune in and find out what those are but in the meantime we will be bringing you our review of spider-man far from home so you will have enjoyed that at this point we have some fun rewind episodes covered sequels to independence day red dawn even gremlins which celebrated the 30 year anniversary recently so if you haven't already make sure you listen to those shows until next time jeremy why don't you remind the folks what we're talking about today after that long intro uh, are we not going to introduce ourselves? We usually do that. Yeah, you didn't intro us, Adam. Well, I sort of did. I, I said no, you did. Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy pitching their ideas. Oh. You, you want the proper You shortchanged well, you've done it in every single episode. <laughs> and this one you have to understand. Kind of a big deal. People Apparently. Know. <laughs> the rest of us will just kind of listen to his pitch. All right. But, you know... I think it's important then, Jeremy, that you uh, remind us what we are here to talk about, after all. And who are you? Well, if you haven't figured this out, this is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, starring Matthew Wait, let, Broderick. Let's, let's take that again. This is going to be a lot of edits on this show. Okay, because listen, you always do, this is Jeff, this is Jeremy, and I'm Adam, and you come up with some spectacular, awesome thing that you can be, whereas we're all like, you know... He just here. assumes he's Ferris. Uh, well, yeah, but he introduces himself as such. Well, obviously, this episode is the one that Adam's taking off because all right, all right. it's his day off. I don't know. We've <laughs> done a hundred and whatever episodes. Ago, so <laughs> I figure we would have figured something out by now. Yep, yep. So this is, you know, this is going to come out. I think what third week of July, something like that. Anyway. But it'll be it'll be ready to go. Give me plenty of time to edit it. So obviously the opening needs a lot of that. <laughs> I broke from our normal format. It's true. I'm sorry, I don't know guys. what happened. I'm sorry to interrupt the routine. I, I shan't do it again. You're you're the one that created the routine. <laughs> yeah. We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.